morning, Glory America. Bonjour. Hi, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It's the last radio hour of the week. I even put on a tie and a coat for this because Dr. Larry Arn is my guest, president of Hillsdale College. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue once a week. We try and put aside details and go big and go back sometimes, way back. This week, we're only going back two weeks to an election that disappointed millions of my listeners, disappointed me. I voted for the president. Looks like President Biden is going to be president-elect uh, very soon. Let me uh, let me begin, Dr. Arn, by asking you, you know, Hillsdale College is nonpartisan, uh, but you do have a fairly center-right and very educated student body. How's the mood been around the college these last two weeks? Uh, well, it's, you know, first of all, the governor has shut down in-person classes. Uh, the mood is is uh, angry, and uh, we're all angry. And uh, we don't think there's any good reason for it. Uh, you know, if you can read, you know that there's 250,000 college students who've contracted this. This is about 10 days old. In the New York Times, I'd love to quote them. Uh, three have died of 250,000, and those three had serious pre-existing conditions. So it's actually much less dangerous to college students than the ordinary flu. And so isolating them, you know, disrupts their education. And the theory of their doing it is that if a lot of people have it, it will get in the nursing homes and it cannot be stopped. Well, that might be true, but where are the efforts to to make sure of that, why, you know, you if, if you uh, if you have strict protocols, you can certainly diminish the number of people who get it around elderly people and sick people, and and instead of that, we're shutting down the whole society, and that has ancillary costs all over the place, including in the case of college students, they need to be going to class. We're trying to finish this semester here. Doctor, and I got to ask you, Justice Alito gave a speech. It was a very important speech about fundamental freedoms in the age of a pandemic. Now, help is on the way with the vaccines. And I understand uh, making sure that the elderly and the fragile are protected. But I believe there is a right to assembly. Right? There is a right to assembly and there is a right to free speech and there is a right to practice religion. And government at every level must pass the most stringent of tests. There must be no alternative available to what they have done when they impose upon a fundamental right that way. Is the college considering suing the governor because she is indeed interfering with, and that doesn't mean it's unconstitutional, it just means it's an open question. She's interfering with a number of your students' First Amendment rights. Have you considered suing her? Yeah, I tried. We have twice now, and uh, we haven't sued her, but we've got. We're th- we're thinking about that right now. This order came last Sunday night, and it's on the you know. So it went into effect on Wednesday. So Thursday we have Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then Thanksgiving break. And so we're losing about ten days in this term. Uh, she says it's three weeks. The rumors in Lansing are that she's going to extend it for three weeks twice more, which would, interesting enough, take it up uh, to the day before the inauguration. And and if she does that, then it will cut into the uh, fall, uh, spring term, and we will certainly exhaust every legal option to stop that. Now, now Dr. Ron, I actually know what I'm talking about here. This is going to surprise you. I have been teaching the free speech cases and the right of assembly cases for 25 years. When you are 
posing on a fundamental right. You must prove that you are using the least intrusive method possible uh, to achieve your end and that there is no alternative and that the government is reaping a significant benefit by doing that. I do not see how. I honestly do not see how a ban on college classes in person serves the objective she has articulated. I don't see how she she wins that. Yeah, it's, it's see, there's a whole alternative plan. Uh, you know, the the great Barrington Declaration and the three great epidemiologists. One of them is Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford. That's in the current imprimis. People should read it. They, they they claim first of all that focused protection. That is to say, all of this massive effort that we've done, it should be devoted to protecting people who are vulnerable, and those are identified now. You know, being old is not enough. You need to have, you know, respiratory disease. There's a list about five or six things, and if you get this, it's likely to kill you. And there are random deaths too. But if if you take out the deaths in nursing nursing homes in the country, you cut the deaths by forty percent, and and uh, and so there there's a whole plan there. And then they go on to say that by doing it this way, we are preventing we are we are putting the burden of gaining immunity to this disease on the vulnerable equally with the with the not invulnerable, whereas the invulnerable ought to carry it, right? I mean, we've had 40 college students get it, and we had one of them who was sick for three days. He's the sickest, and uh, he's in my class this term. And uh, and the rest of them, most of them, wonder if they had it. And that's the typical experience. It is a bad disease, by the way. But another thing to understand is this is not unprecedented, right? The 1918 thing was uh, – pandemic was – Massively worse, and that was a real live disaster. Uh, 57, 58, there was a bad one. 68, there was a bad one. The death counts are higher from this one now, but not a lot higher. Oh, I, I just believe that what Alito was articulating is a fundamental fact about America. Our Constitution is designed to stop government from taking away liberties absent a pressing need that they've got to show, a benefit that they've got to defend, and the least restrictive means must be employed, even if one and two are met. And I just do not believe uh, the governor of Michigan and others are employing the least restrictive means possible. It's just, it's mind-bogglingly stupid, if you ask me as a con law professor. And I'm sure she's got lawyers who tell her she can do this, but they can only do it until a court tells them they can't. And so, you know, one suspects partisan reasons for this, right? Because the policies in the blue states are very different from the policies in the red states. And in the blue states, and, you know, you look at the battleground states, uh, rallies were suppressed, you know, and that's, <laughs> that's a main tool of one of the people running for president. And he couldn't hold them. And, uh, you know, he did them on the borders of those states. And he, you know, he went to states where you could, where, where they would let you do things. Well, that's, you know, that that's interfering with the functioning of the electoral process, which is the heart of the constitutional system. So you need really good reasons for doing that, and we don't okay. have them. We don't have them. 
Now, I, I asked you to come today prepared to talk about a unique election, not the one we just had, but the one that was held in Great Britain in 1945, because uh, it has always mystified me. And, and let's take two minutes now and, and a couple of minutes after the break. Would you describe that election so that we can then discuss it? Uh, yeah. So uh, Winston Churchill uh, became prime minister of Great Britain on the 10th of May, 1940. And in the course of the following 18 months, he became the greatest man in the world. And I, I mean, everybody treated him like that. He was more famous than Joe Stalin and Franklin Roosevelt put together. And they even looked at him that way themselves, wrote things that implied that they understood that. So then the war drags on, of course, for a long time. And then against all hope in the beginning, the good guys won. So it gets to be 1945. Uh, Germany surrendered on May the 5th, 1945. Uh, uh, Japan would eventually surrender on August 15th, I think. Uh, Churchill wanted to hold the government together until the surrender of Japan, but this, the uh, Labor Party socialist opposition leader, Clement Attlee, said, no, we got to have an election. Uh, Attlee had been deputy prime minister in the, in the Churchill uh, regime, in the Churchill administration of the Second World War. Uh, Attlee was a war hero, as were many of the other labor, labor leaders. Uh, they had the election on July the 5th, but the votes could not be counted until July the 26th because many votes had to come in from abroad, troops abroad, for example, but others too. And so there's this period where uh, they vote and nobody knows who won. And then the last conference of the, of the big three of Stalin, Roosevelt, and Churchill was held in Potsdam starting on July 22nd, I think. I may have these dates a little wrong. And so both Churchill and Attlee went, and they both participated in the first half, but then they went, they, they adjourned the meeting, they went home, and they found out that Churchill got buried in a landslide. When we come back, we're going to talk about buried in a landslide, one of the most astonishing results ever. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. Everything Hillsdale available at hillsdale.edu. Stay tuned, America. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. The last radio hour of the week. Everything Hillsdale is collected at hillsdale.edu. You can sign up for Imprimus, which Dr. Arn, the president of Hillsdale College, is my guest today, referenced in the last segment. It's a free monthly speech digest delivered to you the old-fashioned way, in print and ink and paper, to your mailbox. And you can go and do that for free at hillsdale.edu, and you can watch all the online courses Indeed, I imagine the traffic is enormous given the number of people who are learning remotely uh, in this season of American life. Dr. Arm, we went to break. Um, Winston Churchill returns with Clement Attlee to the results of an election, and he lost in a landslide having beaten Hitler and on his way to beating Tojo. What happened? Uh, well, Churchill, you know, he, he, he said a lot about that, both public and private. Uh, there's one very gloomy thing that he said about in private to his friend Duff Cooper, a member of his administration, Alfred Duff Cooper was his name. Uh, he wrote that it was disconcerting, he said, because uh, soldiers seem to have uh, voted sometimes on the promise of more cigarettes. And overwhelmingly on the chance, uh, they thought that labor would bring them home sooner, sooner. And that uh, in some constituencies, conscientious objectors one over proven war heroes. And that was, you know, because first of all, it was devastating to Churchill. You know, he was 
the greatest man in the world. He, he soon found out he was still the greatest man in the world. Just his party was not <laughs> the greatest party, party in the world. Uh, you know, he won by his biggest majority ever. And he, you know, he he was like he would get 30,000 people come to hear him speak. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it soon unfolded after this. But, gosh, he was he was crushed. Now, his his final account of it and the, the one that's truer than the one he said, uh, those are the hurt. That's the hurt of a great man is that uh Britain had paid in blood for this war, that it had sacrificed longer than anybody, that uh, uh, it was a responsibility of the Conservative Party in control since 1935, uh, and that the people were worn out, and they had, you know, the most amazing things had been asked of them, and they were exhausted. And so he, he... Sympathize with them. And, uh, you know, you'll never find a, a case where Churchill turns against the people. Uh, so, you know, now that the Labor Party has this overwhelming majority, and they have promised to socialize major industries, which they proceeded then to do, nine of them. And uh, so, so there's a kind of – you can go to school about how to be in the opposition – uh, in this time, because first of all, Churchill and Attlee had worked very closely together, and they had great respect for each other. You know, when Churchill died, you should read what Attlee wrote about him, that he was the greatest member of parliament in history. Uh, and so they had huge respect for each other, and then they fought like cats and dogs in a certain way. Uh he Church, Churchill had said during the uh, election that you couldn't socialize the country. Uh, event, eventually, it would lead to the use of a secret police, a Gestapo. Uh, and he never retracted that. He said things like that. He had been saying them for 30 years, and he kept saying them. Uh, meanwhile, he watches all this happen, and you know he, he, he first says to the people, we've taken a beating here his people to the to the conservative party in the parliament he said they have won an election promising to do some things and let me first stop and say the american situation is very different because for what does joe biden if he's if he's installed president have a mandate uh he he his platform says one thing he said other things and the people are not i predict going to give him the congress right so so it's a different situation here, but this. But it's still true, though, that if there are things within his powers, that uh, the powers of the president that he ran consistently on, and the people voted for him, and if it turns out that they did vote for him, then then he should. You can't obstruct that. He's going to do it. I will be right back with Dr. Larry R. in the Hillsdale Dialogue this week. We're going to talk about the hurt of a great man, Churchill, in defeat in 1945. Stay tuned, America. Welcome back, America. To you at a special Hillsdale Dialogue this week with my friend, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. Uh, before I go back to Churchill for a moment, Dr. Arn, you and I have been uh, friends and colleagues since 1989. And there is a person who we both know pretty well by the name of McCarthy. And Kevin McCarthy was this fellow running around with the BIA when you were running the Claremont Institute and I was trying to figure out how to drive around California. 
who did pretty well in this cycle, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. One of my students is a senior person on his staff, and uh, I hear all the. First of all, we both know Kevin McCarthy very well, and the deal about him is he's a fighter, and he, uh, you know, I understand that he was heart sick about the loss of the house in 2018 that we we didn't fight a good fight and boy this time did he not really fight a great fight and uh and that's his you know he was like that in the california legislature too he 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 think he's very good at he's got he's got his spirit rises at the chance to go tell people why they should vote for his party and uh gosh they did that just wonderfully and also the blocking and tackling you know it's a it, you know it's uh, good candidates win more often than bad ones. <laughs> so yes, he, he went and found a lot of good people to run. You know, I, I talked uh, yesterday with uh, Lisa McCarthy, I believe, uh, the, the the new Michigan congresswoman from the tenth district, which is where I ran my first ten k and first marathon. She's a crackerjack. I mean, she's just terrific. And I talked with the new congresswoman from uh, Hilton Head Island in Charleston. She's crackerjack. She's terrific. McCarthy was out there recruiting for two years, and and yeah. he's going to do it again because he wants to be speaker. I mean, he has yeah, ambition. I think he might be too. He's uh, he, uh, you know, I, I I just rejoiced when he got that job, and uh, and thought, you know, he's uh, like he was very shrewd about uh, and insightful is what he was about the advent of Donald Trump, because you know that was. That's a, Donald Trump is a very large subject. You know, you've got to – we'll be talking about that guy for a long time. And, you know, I even have some faint hope that he's going to be the president again. Because what did he do? He just shook things up in the most amazing way, and he found enormous constituencies that had not been available to the Republicans. Well, the Republicans divided into two groups, you know, when he showed up on the scene – and one of them didn't, you know, well, he's rude and he's uh, getting us in trouble on race. And gosh, what are we doing? Does he really mean it about immigration, even if we've said it ourselves? There was a lot of that. There still is some of that. McCarthy just said, you know, I talked to him one time and he and I had the same first observation. And it was, you know, you're, you're the cause of me having it. You made me watch a Trump rally one night in August of 2015. I didn't even want to watch it. And I looked at that, and I looked at the the pan, the crowd, and I looked at my wife, and I said, there's our nominee. (laughs) uh, Well, we're we're back in Switzerland because people – he may or may not run in 2024, and I will remain neutral. But I will say this. President Trump got a higher percentage of the African-American male vote than any Republican in my lifetime. I believe that is a correct statement. Yeah. Ike yeah. may have That's done better, I and I guess Ike was, uh, I guess he ran when I was not yet one, so I'd have to check that. But he he had a huge African-American male out uh, uh, a vote compared to uh, W and uh, John McCain and Bob Dole and uh, even, I believe, President Reagan. Uh, let me go back to something you said in the last segment, Dr. Arn. When, when Winston Churchill faced defeat in 1945, having won the world for freedom, you, suffered, you said he suffered the hurt of a great man. Uh, would you expand on that? Well, he, you know, I mean, 
the relationship that Churchill had with the British people was unique. Uh, he was the voice and the face of their determination. And his speeches on the radio were you know, extremely popular uh, to the extent that we know approval ratings, which we do know some, it, uh, uh, they never got below 80%. And, you know, he did marvels. And it, there was a terrible strain, you know, because if you watch the movie Darkest Hour, you can see what the decisions that he helped to make and persuade his colleagues to make. And they were risky. And then they came through, right? And there was victory. And and uh, then the people turned him out. So he went off to Switzerland with his daughter, took one of his daughters. They, were, they always cheered him up. And he went to paint, went to a pretty place, and he painted. And, uh, you know, and he was muttering to himself. And then uh, he, he uh, walked out of a restaurant on a sidewalk, and a bunch of Italian girls came rushing up asking for his autograph. And that uh, uh, his sister, daughter Sarah, writes that uh, that helped cheer up Papa. And I think what it meant was... He understood that his life was not over. Uh, he understood that, uh, you know, this is a little signal to him. And then the way he was treated by the people in his party, because, you know, you're in trouble when you're a prime minister and you take a drubbing, and they and usually your party throws you out and gets somebody else. Well, they just couldn't do that with him. They didn't want to. And, and, and uh, you know, Leo Amory, who's an old friend of his, commented, you know, well, they're impatient with him, and they think that maybe he's too old to be a great leader now. But on the other hand, he's Churchill. He's Churchill. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there are two stories I never tire of hearing. One is the reaction of George III when Washington retires to Mount Vernon. And the other is upon Churchill's decision to exit number 10, what, that week? Uh, oh, you mean after his defeat? Yes. Oh yeah, yeah. He he cleared right out, and uh, and he he you know his first statement was, and see we could we could do with more of this by the way. His first statement was the people have spoken, and I am their servant, and then he left, and uh, and see that's uh, uh, it, it just was and another thing about it is this this election is ambiguous. There's a bunch of weird stuff in it, and there's some lawsuits pending that may show up, prove some weird stuff. But that election, Labor just swamped him, and uh, and he saw the significance of that. And you know what he did, by the way, was he redoubled his efforts, and it took until 1951. There were two elections in 50 and 51, and you could see that what happened was. So they're socializing all these industries. And then, wonder of wonders, it doesn't go very well. (laughs) (laughs) The the service is not good. It's expensive. Things cost more. People don't have any money. The Germans got rid of rationing, war rationing, two years before the British did. (laughs) So, So you think Winston Churchill didn't have a field day with that in the House of Commons. He just really um... laced it. The American people are right now binge-watching The Crown Season 4. 
I mean, binge watching. Uh, And they have not done a very good job by Margaret Thatcher, in my view. They have made her less wonderful than she is. I don't know if you've seen any of it yet. They they have have communicated Iron Lady, but they have not communicated the fact that she led her party decisively in a way that gained great acclaim and changed Great Britain forever. Um, And uh, do you agree with me on that? Did you see any of it? No, I can't. I, you know, I I turned against the first season because they just butchered Winston Churchill so bad. Yes, they <laughs> and, did. And, yeah. and you know, and then it turned into kind of, uh, you know, scandal sheet inside the royal family stuff. You know, uh, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh, you know, with a straying eye and stuff like that. And, and uh it's a you know writing about the inner workings of the royal family is a license to steal because the information is not there. You know, uh, you know what they they've done well by one person, Elizabeth. Uh, yeah, and, that's, uh, that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing. They're doing one very well by Elizabeth. And in fact, I, I read a review this week that said uh, the 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 picture of of Charles is devastating yet sympathetic. Uh, he must hate. Everybody will hate it except Elizabeth because she is emerging as a regal constitutional monarch ought to, uh, which is even handed and fair and quiet and keeping her opinions to herself. But they, they did not do well by Churchill and they are doing terribly by Margaret Thatcher. And you knew Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and, and what I'm trying to explain to people, I only know her from a distance. I never met her. I, I saw her in a room at the California Club give a speech and I was mesmerized. But they are not making her anywhere near the charismatic whirlwind that she was. Yeah, well, her, you know, first of all, she was, uh, I did, you know, because of weird things that happened in my life, I, I knew her pretty well. And, you know, I had dinner and lunch with her several times. And, and, uh, and I visited her several times after she retired. And then she really had time to talk. Well, first of all, she was a woman of very deep conviction expressed in a loving way. She, you know, she, things she learned from her mother and her father were important to her. And she used those in her speeches all the time. And it's certainly true of her that, uh, uh, you know, she, when she heard gunfire, she turned and faced the enemy and that, you know, she wasn't, uh, hold hold that thought. They did not spend enough time on the Falklands, that's for sure, because that yeah. was quite the decisive moment. Stan Toon, America, I'll be right back with more Dr. Larry Arn on the Hillsdale Dialogue. Before I go, though, let me remind you about Angel Tree Prison Fellowship's ministry to the children of the incarcerated. There are 2.7 million children, and think about them in 2020. It's a tough lot no matter what year it is. You're six, you're seven, you're four, you're eight. You're in those years where mom or dad really matter and Christmas is everything. Those years when you start thinking about it now. And I'm telling you about it early this year because there are no patio tables with angel tree appeals where people normally give to angel trees so that Prison Fellowship can take those donations, match them with an inmate, a mom or dad who's nearby. They always connect the local church with the uh, the family and then deliver pre- uh, presents from your donations along with a note from that parent to those children. So if you could on this Friday, please be as generous as you can. Please dig as deep as you can. Uh, I always tell you, $22 takes care of one child. 
Maybe that's all you can do. But if you can do a lot more, that would be appreciated. 500, uh, 200, 100, maybe four figures. Look, you're bringing Christmas to children who otherwise don't get it. They simply don't get it. And their life is tough as it is. Prison Fellowship intervenes to change the lives of many of these children every year, but never more joyfully than at Christmas through the Angel Tree Fellowship. The banner is at the top of HughHewitt.com. Just go to HughHewitt.com, go all the way to the top, and you'll see the Angel Tree banner for Prison Fellowship. And thank you. Come right back for more of the final segment of Dr. Larry Arnn and the Hillsdale Dialogue right here on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. Hugh Hewitt talking to Dr. Larry Arnn. The Hillsdale Dialogue is in its... Uh, its Coming towards the stretch here, and the key part of this is how to be the opposition. When you have lost and you haven't expected it, and Churchill lost in 1945 and he didn't expect it, you have a choice on how to govern in the opposition. And Churchill was, as Dr. Arndt said, the leader of the opposition. How did he carry on that opposition, Dr. Arndt? Because I think it's important, especially for the Republicans, to hear this. Well, one one thing he did was, uh, you know, Churchill believed that the alternation in power was inevitable. He also believed, and it's very parallel to this situation, that the opposition would uproot the British Constitution. And so that meant that he fought them fiercely. On the other hand, he recognized the constitutional forms that had put them in office. So there was a, it was a handy thing. There was a huge thing, an extremely important thing, which was international relations and policy toward the threatening Soviet Union which emerged as the strongest power after the Second World War. What are we going to do about that? Well, the foreign minister in the Adley government was a man named Ernest Bevan. And uh, Ernest Bevan was a very left-wing uh, shop steward and uh, labor organizer. And Churchill had dealings with him because of labor disputes that the government got involved in. And he found out that this guy was very tough and that he was both anti-Nazi an anti-communist. And Winston Churchill himself brought him into, into British government in the, in the, during the Second World War and gave him a cabinet position. And so he was, you know, on the left of the Labour Party, and yet he was loyal to Britain and opposed to her enemies abroad. And so Churchill agreed with the foreign policy, by and large, of the Adley administration, and that set Churchill up, by the way, to give the great Iron Curtain speech in Fulton, Missouri in 1946, where he made the sort of great international statement that signaled the beginning of the Cold War. And if he had had a British government back at home that was going to chop him up about that, uh, that, that would have uh, deflated the thing. And, you know, it's an interesting thing. If he won the election... He, he, would, he would not have been able to give that speech himself because you couldn't say the things in that speech as the policy of the British government because it would have to be worked out in advance with the United States. And see, Harry Truman, KG guy that he was, he, he understood that Churchill was the greatest man in the world. And so Churchill gets this note from the president of Westminster College, but they, please come and talk, and there's a P.S. on the bottom – uh, nice college in my home state. I will introduce you, Harry Truman. You see, well, Clement Attlee and Winston Churchill worked that out together. Oh with my, Harry Truman! I always so learned something. Could, I didn't know that. Yeah, and see, that's that's 
And, you know, Churchill is sending them cables to the, to the socialist government from, from Washington and keeping them involved blow by blow. And then it was just a wonderful little dance, well prepared, because, you know, it made a storm. Stalin attacked it. The New York Times attacked it, to name two people who somehow fit in the group. Um, and, and, uh, but, and Truman said, well, I didn't know <laughs> what he's going to say. Well, you know, they rode down together on the train and, and, uh, to, from Washington, Missouri. And, uh, and Churchill cabled back home to the socialist government. I read the speech, and he loves it, right? And then the British government said, of course, he's not speaking for the British government. And Churchill is very artful in the way he introduces that speech because he's standing there in, in his academic garb at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, and his beginning of his speech says, you know, uh, after a long life, you know, I occupy no official statement station. There's nothing here but what you see. Well, I have a photograph. And what you see is Winston Churchill at the podium and immediately to his left, the president of the United States. Oh, that's elegant. There are things that you can do together, and they're a sign of health in the nation when that happens. And both sides should be looking for those things. Now, our politics are, you know, we're in sort of 1850s kind of politics right now. And, and you know, there's two Americas, and they're contending. And one of the reasons this these questionable things in the election, and there seem to be a terrible lot of them. One of the reasons they spark so fast and so much is because there's two radically different directions to go in. And, but I, I, I want to close by, by Lincoln. We are friends. We must not be enemies. I hope I have the quote correct. Do I not? Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, the mystic chords of memory uh, will keep us united. Well, that's what I pray for. And, and uh, you know, some of the things that are proposed, which wouldn't happen if unless they get the Senate, is, you know, that, that there's an interest in making one party uh, undefeatable in electoral politics. And that, that's a change in the structure of the nation, and that can't be agreed to. That's got to be resisted. And that is on the shoulders of Georgia. Georgia, that is on your shoulders. We'll be back next week with more Dr. Larry Arn on the next Hillsdale Dialogue. Until then, thank you, Dr. Arn. Thanks, all of you. Everything Hillsdale, including all of the Hillsdale Dialogues, are found at viewforhillsdale.com and everything Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. Have a great weekend. <laughs>